The following sermon is from the pulpit of Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. Visit us online at flintriverpbc.org. As we begin reading this morning, let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. And then he goes on to describe how these people would depart from the faith. And this might be an interesting thought to you if you've never read this passage. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them that believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. We observe this morning a passage of Scripture in which Paul warns against an error that he says, will occur in the latter times. One consistent focus of Paul's preaching and his writing was the reality of approaching conflict. I think that, as they say, hindsight is twenty twenty. If you look through church history, you'll see that one of the things that has permeated church history is division and controversy. There are times when, in Christian history, the state has merged with the church and interjected great controversy in Christianity. There are times when the church had religious liberties and freedom, and because of that, grievous wolves entered in and created controversy. One thing is certain in the church of the Lord Jesus, if you're not going through a storm, you know that a storm is behind you. Because if you've been in the church any number of years, you know that from time to time there are storms that afflict every single congregation and there are storms that afflict every single denomination, every single order of faith. If you're not in a storm, you know that a storm is coming. And that's just the sad reality of life on this planet. The storms are behind us and unfortunately there are other storms that are coming. There will always be, as long as the world stands, another issue, another error, another false teacher, another, as Paul would say here in this passage, doctrine of devils. There's always a storm that is approaching the church of the Lord Jesus. We know that from a natural perspective. There's always another thunderstorm. There's always another tornado. There's always another hurricane. In fact, we have tornado season. We have two in the state of Alabama, and we know that in the Gulf of Mexico there's a hurricane season, and we brace for that. We're ready for that. Every year, or every birthday of my wife in the past several years, there's been a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico. That's not her fault, by the way. (laughs) But we know not to plan a beach trip on Rachel's birthday because it's hurricane season, and statistically, you know that there's going to be a hurricane that weekend, more than likely, somewhere in the Gulf of Mexico. This past year, I was down there for a preaching appointment, and Tropical Storm Gordon came through 
as she and I were on the balcony of the hotel room looking at the beach, watching the storm as it went by and the, the waves that looked like they were Pacific Ocean waves crashing over the pier that went out, that fishermen went out on and, and fished over the water. There's always the next hurricane season, and Peter would speak of persecutions as such, to think it not that some strange thing has happened unto you. We don't think it a strange thing when a thunderstorm rolls through North Alabama. They don't think it a strange thing when a hurricane goes through the Gulf. The church shouldn't think it a strange thing when an issue or an error or a storm or something that is false interjects itself into church life. As we think about Paul's focusing on this often in his ministry, just to give you a a brief survey of some of the remarks that he made. In the book of Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul met with the elders of the church at Ephesus, and as he met with them on his way to Jerusalem, in which, in which trip he would be beaten and arrested and end up appealing to Caesar, and he would travel to Rome on that appeal to Caesar. It set in motion many things in his life and many things in his ministry, but he was determined to go and preach in Jerusalem, and the Spirit had spoken expressly that he was going to suffer as he went into Jerusalem. He went there not knowing the things that shall befall him, but the Holy Ghost, witness, Holy Ghost witnesses that in every city bonds and afflictions abide him. As Paul wrote, or spoke rather, to the church, the elders of the church at Ephesus here, he exhorts them to take heed to themselves and to the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made them overseers, to feed the church which Jesus has purchased with his own blood. But notice verse 29. For I know this, that after my departing, after I leave, shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Wolves will enter the flock. And if you study just the, the natural occurrence of wolves, any sort of a predator, you know that that's in the nature of a predator. Back when I was a boy, we had rabbit ear television, and we had ABC, NBC, PBS, and at times we had Channel 21, which was a, a variety of different networks owned it, and it, it played more of the, the cheesier television shows, and it didn't have news. And so we would spend a lot of our time on Sunday night watching Nature and National Geographic because we had four or five channels that we could pick up, and you had to turn the antenna every, every channel that you wanted to pick up. But... Watching that as a boy, I'm sure we all have spent time watching Nature or National Geographic. And you know that as little Ben and Josh watched, the, the lion comes into the flock of wildebeest or the antelope or whatever it, creature it's stalking. And it, it sneaks in among them. It's crouched down and it's, it's designed in such a way to blend in with the surroundings and it picks off whatever part of the flock is furthest away or slowest or oldest or youngest. It always picks off the weaker of the flock or the herd of the animals, and it stalks it, it pounces on it, and it devours it. And that's simply the nature of a predator. That's what a predator does. Paul uses this analogy, as the Lord Jesus used it, to say that there will be grievous wolves that enter in among them. They arrive at the perimeter, they begin to see their target, and they creep in, they engage, they pounce, and they devour. That's what the, the wolf does among the flock. 
Paul goes on to say, also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things. That means that sometimes errors happen because a wolf creeps into the church. Sometimes errors occur because men in the church arise speaking perverse things. Why? Now read this very carefully. To draw away disciples after them. They want to be leaders. They want to have a faction after them. And so they use their authority and their power and their false ideas to create factions of men who follow them. Certain men like to have a following. They like for people to look at them and say, that's a man that we want to follow. I simply like to talk about the Bible. If you want to know, why do you do what you do? I like to talk about the Bible. First of all, I like to talk. Secondly, I like to talk about the Bible. So that's my M.O. That's what I'm out for. I want you to learn about the Bible. And if I've taught you something out of the Word of God, I feel like the day was a success. But these men, they lead others as disciples after them. Now, Paul would also warn in the book of 2 Thessalonians that the second coming of Christ will not be until there be a falling away first, 2 Thessalonians 2, and that the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was with you, I told you these things." In other words, Paul says the second coming of Christ will not be until a great falling away that is an apostasy and that the man of sin will be revealed who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worship so that he is God sitteth in the temple of God showing himself as God. And then he says what? Remember, I told you this when I was with you. So that means that when Paul was with them in Thessalonica, he told them about this coming man and this great apostasy that would be before the end of time. Again, what is a common theme of Paul's preaching? Warning about troubles that are to come, some of them in the short term, some of them in the long term, to warn about troubles that would befall the church. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such turn away. And he continues to warn about this. And so we see that this was a common theme in Paul's preaching. It was a common theme in Paul's epistles. And it's one such thing that he would say in the last verse that we read from 1 Timothy chapter 4, If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ. Now that to me is an amazing statement because we don't have many commendations of ministers in the Word of God. In other words, the Word of God doesn't point us to the preacher. The Word of God points us to the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we find a statement such as, if you do this, you will be a good minister of the Lord Jesus Christ, I think that's significant and that's telling. And here we read where Paul says, if you put the brethren in remembrance of these things, what? That in the latter times, 
Some shall depart from the faith. You will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. In other words, to remind the flock of the dangers of false teaching in the world makes you a good minister, not a bad minister. Now, in our day and age, if you're a man who stands for the Word of God and you teach what the Word of God says about salvation, about the nature of man, about depravity, about sin, about the way that church is supposed to be structured and ordered, the way that we're to worship in spirit and in truth, if you teach what the Word of God says about gender identity, male and female, the structure of marriage being one man and one woman, you will be castigated as cruel and mean and vindictive, and I just wish he wouldn't talk about those controversial ideas. Don't you know he's just a bigot? But the Word of God says if you teach the Word of God and you warn the flock of God, you are what? You are a good minister. And so we ought to endeavor to demand the truth and demand the gospel as we opened up this series weeks ago in our message entitled Demanding the Gospel from 1 Timothy chapter 1. The church is, after all, the pillar and the ground of the what? The truth. From the last two messages together, the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Namely, the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. It is our our charge in the world to defend and uphold the truth of God's word. As we begin looking at the specifics of this text, the Spirit speaketh expressly, a strong language. This isn't something that might come to pass. This isn't that Paul had an idea of something that may happen. It wasn't vague and nebulous like many of the so-called prophecies that men claim to utter in today's time. You often hear this. I just feel like the Lord is telling us today. There was no, I feel like the Lord is telling us today in 1 Timothy 4. It is, the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. This is something that shall come to pass in the world. And, as we'll see today, is something that has been happening in the world. Now, if you noticed in the passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul said in the last what? Days. The last days. When Paul predicts that issue, it's something that is localized to when? Well, the last days. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul wrote about the falling away, the great apostasy that shall come. He wrote about it as something that would occur before when? Before the second coming of Christ. Notice that this particular prophecy applies to the latter what? Times. Times, plural. Times. Not the latter time, singular, but the latter times is in plural. I think as we look at this today, we'll see that Paul is warning about something that is going to be a recurring issue throughout the church age. The latter times. From here on out, multiple occasions of this idea in church history. Now, as we think about the latter times, I can give you three options, and we'll explain why we point these out. Paul could have had reference to the latter times to Timothy, a point later in Timothy's ministry. In other words, Timothy, at some point later for you, this is going to be something that you're going to have to deal with, perhaps, something later for the church at Ephesus. 
in the latter times of this church's ministry, this could be an issue. That's one idea. Another idea regarding the latter times, at some point later in church history, in other words, in a future age of the church, and here we are two millennia into New Testament church history, or lastly, which is the predominant view, that Paul is warning about the same perilous times that he spoke about or he wrote about in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And so his focus here, if we take that view, would be that he is looking exclusively at the end of time. Now, I already let the cat out of the bag. I, I really believe that Paul is talking about a recurring issue in church history. And as we'll see in just a moment, this is a recurring issue in church history. And we'll summarize this. You might think, how is this relevant to me? Well, first of all, Paul said, you need to be aware of this. But secondly, there are principles involved in today's subject matter that apply to your everyday life in the arena of Christian liberty and what God would allow you to do unto his glory, things that you can, you can take this message home today and you can apply this message today. And so why point these out? As we discuss the interpretation of Paul's warning, you'll, you'll see how it applies to various errors in church history. And perhaps, again, as history repeats itself, one last movement that we might even see unfolding around us today in the world. Now, the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Contrary to Paul's exhortation that has been a consistent theme of this epistle, some depart from the faith. Now, to depart from the faith means that they were once where? They were once adhering to the faith. And when we speak about the faith here, we have reference to the faith once delivered to the saints. If you're taking notes this morning, you might want to write down that sometimes the word faith in the Bible has reference to our god sparked trust in him that begins at the new birth. At the new birth, we know him in the heart. This is why John the Baptist leapt for joy in his mother's womb. He was born of the Spirit when he was yet in his mother's womb. This is why the men on the road to Emmaus, their hearts burned within them. This is why the thief on the cross looks at Jesus and he says, look, this man is unjustly condemned because there is a trust and a knowledge of him that is sparked within him. He knows Christ from the heart. Jesus has been the author and finisher of his faith. Sometimes the word faith means faithfulness or fidelity. But in this occurrence, the word faith means a body of truths to be believed. A body of truths to be believed. Sometimes when we read, particularly when it has the article the before it, when we read the word faith, it has reference to the overall body of biblical truth, that which is true, that which is right. The Apostle Jude wrote that we should earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. And where do you find the faith once delivered to the saints? Well, you find the faith once delivered to the saints in the Word of God 
This has been delivered to us. It hasn't been lost. The church has been the pillar and ground of this truth for 2,000 years. We can trust that what this is is the Word of God. We don't have to worry about it being corrupted. We don't have to worry about it being destroyed, lost, and recovered because God has seen fit to preserve His Word through His church, and this is the faith once delivered to the saints. But there are some who shall depart from the faith giving heed, this means that they submit to, they yield to, seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Now again, the emphasis in 1 Timothy is to demand the truth, to demand the gospel. But Paul warns of those who would depart from the gospel truth. Now let's look at the influences here. So many times when someone goes astray, what is it that we blame it on? We blame it on worldly influences. Well, they, they were influenced by this false teacher or that false teacher, this idea or that idea. Maybe they were overcome with some sense of being enamored by a, a celebrity preacher and began to copy the cookie-cutter pattern that that man or that organization has set. We, we like to look at the physical aspects of error. And by physical aspects, I mean what man is influencing someone when they go astray. But you notice that Paul doesn't blame this departure on a man, does he? Let's read it. Giving heed to a false teacher? No, and there are passages that speak about false teachers. Giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. The influences that Paul has under consideration here are not flesh and blood. They're not men. They're not other people. The influences that Paul has under consideration here are demonic. Principalities and powers, spiritual wickedness in high places. You might refer to these as wicked spiritual entities. Now, if you're unaware of this, let me just acquaint you with it briefly. The Word of God teaches that there are devils, plural, in the world. Now, there is the devil, the wicked one, the Beelzebub, Lucifer, Satan, but there are also devils, plural. And in our modern language, we refer to this as demons. We would call them demons. Evil spirits is what the New Testament referred to them as many, many times. Jesus and the apostles would go around and cast evil spirits out of people. And so the next thing you know, you, you've got a man, let's say legion, who had a legion of devils within him. He's living in a tomb, living in caves, and he's chained, and he breaks the chains, and he chases men away, and he abuses men, and the, spirit, the spirits that are in him harm him. They cause great self-harm to him. And Jesus approaches under this man and these devils begin to cry out unto him, torment us not before our time. Now they understood. The devils believe and tremble. They know who the Lord of the universe is. Jesus cast the devils out of that man, and the next thing you know, he's clothed and seated at the feet of Jesus in his right mind. But what was that man overcome with? A legion of devils. This means there are many devils in the world. John wrote in 1 John chapter 1, Beloved, believe not every what? Preacher? Believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God. 
because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Now, we see the proper order here. False prophets are gone into the world, but why are false prophets gone into the world? Because there are spirits in the world that are not of God. And so you have spirits that are not of God, which leads to false prophets who are teaching things that are not of God. There is a greater root to false teaching than merely crazy notions that sometimes men have in their mind and go out and begin to proselyte. False doctrine finds its origin in demonic influence. That ought to scare us. That ought to be alarming. God wants you to know this. Is this really important for me to know? I think it is. Many false prophets are going out into the world. Hereby you know, know ye the Spirit of God, even the Spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. How do you know if the influence in a preacher's ministry is divine, is godly, is righteous? Because the preacher confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh, that he is the Son of God. It points to Christ. Every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God, and this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world." Many Christians are looking for a future antichrist, but the Word of God teaches that there are many antichrists. Lower A, antichrists. There are many antichrists that are in the world. What is antichrist? What does that mean? It means against Christ. Why are antichrists in the world? Because there are many spirits that teach error in this world. Now, I want you to understand that this world exists of more than meets the eye. There are evil, invisible, demonic, devilish influences in the world that aim to lead you astray and destroy you. Now, young people, let me talk to you a moment. There are evil influences in the world that want to destroy you in such a way that it affects you for the rest of your life. The enemy has you in his crosshairs. And if he can destroy your life now, he can rob you from decades of the service of God, and he can even cause circumstances and situations in your life now that you might never recover from. So be aware. Be aware of the influence in the book of Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul warns of these influences and he says that our battle ultimately is not against flesh and blood. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. These are not fleshly principalities. These are not flesh and blood principalities. Against powers. These are not earthly powers. Against the rulers of the darkness of this world against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, how is it that you and I will be able to withstand against this onslaught of the armies of evil? We put on the whole armor of God, as he said in verse 11, and he says again in verse 13, and he goes on to define it as the, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, your loins girt about with truth, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, taking the sword of the Spirit, and praying with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, watching with all perseverance. You're vigilant in your watch as a soldier of Christ. 
But he says our ultimate battle isn't against flesh and blood. It looks to be, doesn't it? A couple of weeks ago, there was a protest taking place outside the abortion clinic in Huntsville, and someone saw the the protesters. They refer to themselves as sidewalk counselors, and they drove off and attempted to run over the pro-life advocates there and drove through the landscaping. And what is that? That looks to be a very physical battle, doesn't it? A few weeks ago, I was at the pro-choice rally in Huntsville preaching to people, sharing the, the biblical agenda, if you will, and some of the people there were so hostile and angry and even physically threatening. There were a couple of occasions where people had to hold some of them back to stop them from attacking some of us who were there. That looked to be a very physical battle. But we should understand that even though it was manifesting itself in this physical sense, the ultimate influence there was demonic. It was an evil, devilish influence that is in the minds and hearts of many of those people. We should understand that this battle is not purely physical. Paul says that the reason these errors occur is because people depart from the faith giving heed to what? Seducing spirits. Seducing spirits. They are seduced by an evil spiritual influence. And what? Doctrines of devils. You can refer to these as the actual teachings of devils, but they're taught from someone else who has been taught them. And so here we have the physical influence, the man influence, where men might teach other men the doctrines of devils. But at the same time, though these doctrines of devils are taught from man to man, what's the ultimate root of these ideas? Devils. The doctrines of devils communicated from man to man, the origin of these is demonic. In fact, though taught by men, you you might consider the origin of all false teaching to be demonic. The root of error is an actually human. Now he goes on to say about them that they speak lies and hypocrisy. Let's look at verse 2. They speak lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Let me share a statement with you. Sincerity doesn't baptize error. Sincerity doesn't baptize error. What do I mean by baptize error? I mean to take it into the church and sanctify it. Well, it's, it's wrong, but they're sincere, so that makes it okay. Sincerity doesn't baptize error into being permissible in the church. We are to be the pillar and the ground of the truth. And as we said a couple of weeks ago, if it is wrong, it is not true. Things that are different are not alike. We tell every kindergartner that. If it is red, if it is red, it is not blue. It might be purple, but it's not blue. If it's hot, it's not cold. If it is good, it is not evil. If it is evil, it is not good. Sincerity doesn't baptize error. As we think about the lies that are spoken in hypocrisy, and Paul refers to them as lies, even if they're spoken sincerely, if it is not true, it is a lie. This is one of the things that I pray so fervently about. Dear, dear God in heaven, lead us into all truth. There are things that I've said in my ministry and in my past that were not right. Guess what? 
There are things that I may say from time to time now that are not right in God's perspective. And they're based upon my understanding at the time, and none of us have perfect understanding. Which ought to make us stop and say, thank you, dear God, for your grace. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, Isaiah 53. We all have some misunderstanding in our view of Scripture, passages, parables, eschatology. None of us are right on everything all the time except the Lord Jesus. But we do the very best that we can. These people are severe. They're extreme. Understand this isn't just some good godly person who has a misunderstanding because they don't know better, because they haven't studied it out. These are people who depart speaking lies. Now, you notice that the root of this in them personally, now the root of it in the world is what? Evil spirits, demonic influence. But the root of it individually is that they have a conscience seared with a hot iron. To sear, in essence, is to desensitize. Their conscience, that part of a man's personality that feels guilty, that recognizes right from wrong. And and I would say that all men, because we're made in the image of God, we have some sort of conscience. Now, let me clarify that in a moment. But we all have this sense of, is this right or is this wrong? Prior to the new birth, our consciences are so that we do not have the laws of God written on our heart, and so we do not lament the terrible things that we do. When we are born of the Spirit of God, we become what theologians of old referred to as a sensible sinner. We now feel the sting of sin on our conscience. We feel very convicted, very condemned. The Holy Spirit convicts us of things that we do that are wrong, according to the Upper Room Discourse, and we regret the terrible things that we do simply because we know they are wrong. And this is one of the things that makes the gospel message so effective when we hear that Jesus has saved us from all our sins. That guilt on that conscience when we believe the message, it it is set free and we're purged of that. We can rejoice in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But their conscience, their ability to discern right from wrong is desensitized. It's seared with a hot iron. This is something that the first century man would have been well acquainted with. Have you ever heard of a wound being cauterized? We're familiar with this even in today's time. If you've ever burned your hand and it hurts in the moment, but you know soon a blister develops and the skin there is dead, you know that the skin that is dead, it experiences no feeling. Another example of that, though it's not to be seared, but is very similar when we do a lot of manual labor, We work and we sling a pick or we sling a hammer. Perhaps you lift weights a lot and you build the calluses up on your hands. You know that where the callus is, it's because of of mild injury and the skin thickens and suddenly it becomes very dead to the touch. If you've ever been a guitar player and you played guitar, you know that from the pressing of the strings, you begin to develop calluses on the tips of your finger and it desensitizes your fingertips so that it doesn't hurt anymore. When you play guitar, that was a cruel joke to me in ninth grade when I got a guitar and began learning chords. And about five minutes into playing, I'm thinking, this is misery. Who could do this for hours on end? Well, I had no calluses. And if you've ever played guitar, you know that there's a big difference when you have your calluses and when you don't. But it takes away the, the sense. It takes away the feeling. 
These people have had their consciences seared, desensitized with a hot iron. Now, sin and lies, like heat, burn the conscience to such a degree that it is not as affected by the sting of sin, personally. And I have reference to you and me. There was a day in American history when, if some of the things that happened on television today were to happen on television then, people would have been outraged. They would have been ashamed that they were exposed to it. They would have blushed and turned the television off and apologized to their families. And there would have been campaigns to write and demand that that filth not be shown on the public airwaves. Because they are, guess what? The public airwaves. We as the citizens of this country, we actually have the rights to that. We look at it as the FCC and the, what the government says, but we're the people who appoint and control the government in this country, fundamentally by the laws of this land. And so it's public airwaves. Why is it that we're not offended by it the way that we used to be offended by it? Because we've been desensitized. We don't have the feeling that we once had. It doesn't offend us the way that it should offend us, the way that it would have offended us in another time because we've been desensitized to it. Repeated exposure to sin, even if you're viewing it with your eyes, it works to desensitize us against sin. And so it doesn't affect us the way that it used to. You might read into this implied that we're to react to sin or to error with a nervous system response. In other words, when you see something that is sinful, you see something that is deplorable, you see something that is terrible, you see something that is contrary to God's word, we ought to react to that as the body would react to something painful. If you cut your finger, if you burn your hand on the stove, if you're trimming ladies the, uh, the rose bush out front and you get a thorn in the flesh. You know how nothing quite hurts as bad as a thorn in the flesh. The pain is there to teach you to preserve yourself. God gave you the pain as a function of your body, as a system in your body to teach you not to do that again. It's like your service engine sunlight in your car. It teaches you something is wrong. Your diagnostic system has found something wrong. God has given us this conscience and when the laws of God are written on it it functions in such a way to tell us right from wrong but also to make us feel the sting of sin and constant exposure to things that are sinful desensitizes us it desensitizes us we should react with distasteful pain to sin now to get to the specific parts that Paul mentions and let's begin reading verse 3 forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving, of them which believe and know the truth. These are referred to as matters of Christian liberty. Now what is the responsibility of every gospel preacher in any sermon that he ever preaches on any topic from any book of the Bible to take the text and to run as quickly as he can to the cross of Christ? How does this relate to the cross of Christ? Jesus died for you. And in his death, he acquired salvation for you. But as a byproduct of being saved from your sins, you are given what is known as Christian liberty 
You have the liberty in Christ to do anything that is not sinful to the praise and glory of God. And so how do we find the cross in this message? We glorify Christ because he has saved us and given us liberty. And this liberty that we have is in Christ. And so this is, if you will, an attack on the very liberty the cross of Christ has provided us. We are not under the bondservant of sin. And because we have freedom in Christ, we are to do everything permissible as often as we do whatever is permissible to the glory of God. We are to do everything to the glory of God. Now, as we speak about things that are permissible, and we're going to come back to this concept in just a moment. In this passage, things that God intends for us to enjoy have been forbidden. Things that God intends for us to enjoy have been forbidden. And so this is an encroachment on the Christian liberty of others. Some false teacher has encroached They have placed a child of God under the bondage of their own self-imposed legalisms. Now, by the way, legalism was alive and well in the first century. What did the Lord Jesus say in Matthew chapter 23? The Pharisees love to sit in Moses' seat. They bind heavy burdens and grievous for them to be born, but would not so much as move one of them with their little fingers. Pharisees loved to put other men under their legalisms. But Jesus didn't come that you would live under a system of legalism. Jesus came that you would live under a system of liberty. Now, as we, Father's Day, dads, husbands, as we think about Christian liberty, and this is something that I've shared with more than one oppressive husband, what is the pattern of the Christian husband? Well, it is Christ. I speak in a mystery, Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 5, that marriage, the two being one, and the husband loving the wife as Christ has loved the church, and the wife submitting to her husband as unto the Lord, these principles from the beginning of time have, in a mystery, depicted the relationship between Jesus and his bride. Does Jesus put you under a system of oppression, saints of God? Or does Jesus give you liberty to do anything permissible with joy unto his own glory? He gives you great liberty. He doesn't hover over you and micromanage you in the things that you do, but he says, if it's not sinful, do it to my glory. And these false teachers come along and they seek to put God's children under oppressive tyranny. Side point tangent, husbands. To be a good husband doesn't mean we stand over our wives and dictate to them as if they're some sort of a kindergartner who needs our help. No, if it makes her happy and it's good, then praise God, let her do it. If you do that, then you're being a godly husband on this Father's Day. These are matters of liberty. Now, there's a couple of ideas that I want to share with you in a couple of terms. You might want to write them down. First of all, as we think about what we do in worship... We are governed by what we refer to as the regulative principle of worship. We've talked about this many times in the past. That means that in church, 
We do what God commanded or depicted, and that alone. And in the New Testament, we know that the way that the disciples met, we, we attempt to replicate that here today, the way that we raise up ministers, we attempt to replicate in our churches, the way we baptize, those that we baptize, all the things that we do, the way we have communion. We structure our church life and government based upon the regulative principle of worship because in John 4, Jesus said that we should worship the Father in spirit and in truth. This means that worship is to be governed by the scriptures. The church is the pillar and ground of the truth. So when we talk about Christian liberty, understand that this isn't a concept that applies to church life as it is how we worship. We don't have liberty to change the order of the church because God has seen fit to organize it in such a way. I believe that was made very clear from 1 Timothy 3.15 and John 4, and many other such places. But this has reference to our day-to-day -day lives. And this is principle number two. Principle one is the regulative principle. We do what God has commanded in his house. Principle number two is the principle of Christian liberty. The principle of Christian liberty is this. In our personal lives, things not forbidden are permissible, granted we do them unto God's glory. It's actually the opposite reasoning of the regulative principle. The regulative principle says we operate in church the way God has commanded, and so we only do things that are revealed or depicted, but in our personal lives, we have liberty to do anything that God has not forbidden, provided that we do it unto the glory of God, provided that we do it unto the glory of God. Now, there's a passage that says explicitly that from the book of First Corinthians, we do all that we do unto the glory of God. Now, this is a principle that you can carry with you every day in your life. If you're at work, you can work to the glory of God. If you sit down with your wife and children tonight or today at lunch, and you engage in an absolute feast for Father's Day, don't feel guilty about that. Do that to the glory of God. You begin it with prayer and you say, Thank you, dear God, that we live in such a place where we can gather with my wife or my children or my parents and enjoy the fellowship that we have with them. Praise God for good, wholesome things. Whatsoever is not forbidden is to be done under the glory of God. And I've emphasized that, that which is not forbidden. What is, what is that which is forbidden? Sin. Scripture doesn't forbid it. Guess what it isn't? It isn't sin. If Scripture doesn't forbid it, it isn't sin. And if it isn't sin, that we, we should do it to the glory of God. You want to talk about a life of joy and happiness and peace? A Christian that understands their liberty in Christ to enjoy their life in the accountability of Christ, doing all they do to His glory, oh, you're going to find a person that, that overflows with joy. One of the philosophies of the first century was Stoicism. What did the Stoics teach? It was the, the counter-philosophy to hedonism. Hedonism taught, if it felt good, do it. And that pleasure is the chief good in the world. Well, we know that fleshly pleasures, things that are sinful, might be pleasing to the flesh, but they're destructive and dishonoring to God. But on the other hand, you have Stoicism that taught that as the Vulcans of Star Trek, we purge out our emotions and we, we live our lives with no fun and no enjoyment. But Scripture 
presents this sort of idea of Christian liberty, that we do anything not sinful if we enjoy it to the glory of God. If you're, if you're playing an instrument, if you're an artist, if you enjoy loving your spouse, do it to the glory of God. And this is a matter of the oppression of believers in matters of Christian liberty. Now look at that. They forbid to marry, and they command to abstain from meats which God hath received or created to be received with thanksgiving. There are two things that you should enjoy that they forbid. This is the oppression of God's children. Now let's get to the specifics. What does this mean? What does this mean? There's a difference in opinion among commentators over whether this was something that was soon to come into the world, something that would come hundreds of years later throughout the church age, or something that would befall the church in the latter times as in the last days. I observe that it is the latter times, plural, not latter days, but latter times, which seems to indicate that it isn't something that occurs the last 20 years before the second coming, in other words, but something that would occur before the end, something at least later to them. We give you three different opinions among commentators. Joel Beakey had the opinion that marriage and meats were forbid, uh, forbidden because shortly in Timothy's ministry, near the end of his ministry, he would have to fight the proto-Gnostics and the Gnostics Gnostics taught that everything physical was evil. Your flesh, this podium, the pages of this Bible, and everything spiritual was good. Does everything spiritual sound good? Giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devil. The Gnostics taught that everything spiritual was good, everything physical was bad, and so we should abstain from anything physical because to be physical is to be bad. And so as a consequence of that, they taught do not marry because to engage in marriage and all that marriage involves is evil. And also they taught that because physical is bad, you should deny yourself the body's physical needs because your physical body is evil. And so you deny it to be more spiritual and to seek enlightenment that would allow you to achieve some higher state of being. That was the error of the Gnostics. Did the Gnostics forbid marriage and meats? Yes, they did. Both John Gill and John Trapp, Gill was a Baptist, Trapp was a Puritan, applied this to the unbiblical requirement of celibacy among ministers, forbidding to marry, and also to the practice of Lent, abstaining of meats. And so those were the opinions of John Gill and John Trapp. Was that an error? Yes. Was that this error? Yes. One more occurrence of it. Matthew Henry applied this as a general attack on liberty to come in the latter times, if you will, a futuristic approach. And so he would say that before the end of time, there will be once again this rearing of its ugly head, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving. By the way, in Paul's day, legalists 
We're already commanding, touch not, taste not, handle not. Why share all three of these views with you at the close of today's message? Because you need to understand that this rears its ugly head over and over in church history. Whether it's in the form of marriage and meats, or whether it's in the form of restricting some other Christian liberty, Jesus intends for you to enjoy your liberty in Christ. What did Paul say to the Galatians? Stand fast in the liberty that you have in Christ, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage, which is salvation by works. Stand in the liberty that I have salvation by grace, and standing in salvation by grace, I walk by faith and I do all that I do to the glory of God. Now concerning the specifics of these, and we have about five minutes remaining, this repeated attack on Christian liberty, marriage, they forbid to marry, Marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, Hebrews 13.4. Marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. Marriage is a good thing to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife. If you say, I don't enjoy marriage, then you're not doing marriage right. God intends for you to enjoy being married. Now, there are times that Sister Rachel and I might snap at each other, but I'm going to tell you, we enjoy marriage. I pick on her. I annoy her on purpose. I torment her. That's how I flirt. I bother her. And bless her heart, for two decades, she's had to put up with it. And even before that, before we were married. And we had a good time. And, and she has a good time. She does all these projects and paints furniture and fills my house with furniture that she paints. And she just has a good time as the woman of 113 Pumpkin Drive. We enjoy letting one another pursue our hobbies and goals and we respect one another in it. I love to hear her sing. And she endures my trumpet playing. You see how I worded that very carefully. We enjoy marriage. You should enjoy marriage. It's to be enjoyed. It is a good. It is not an evil. It is a good that God has given in the world. It is an institution made by God in the beginning of time. As God took a rib from Adam, created Eve out of it, and presented that as his help meet for him in the Garden of Eden. In Matthew 19, Jesus defined marriage according to that definition as they twain, they two, joined together by God as one flesh. And what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. I end wedding ceremonies with that charge to everyone in the audience. And then abstaining from meats. God created food to be eaten. God condemns gluttony. God condemns gluttony. He referred to, or Paul referred to the Cretans in the book of Titus as evil beasts, slow bellies. That's funny every time I read it. He describes them as slow moving bellies. And that's not to make fun of people. We all have different body types and we all have different builds that God has made. But he says that they were lazy people. They were lazy people. 
and he condemned them for that. We're not to be lazy gluttons. Slow belly is to be lazy glutton. That's a synonym. Lazy glutton. We're not to be lazy gluttons. But God created food for, guess what, you to enjoy. Now, I know some of you eat things like Brussels sprouts. What is it that Brother Yule always wants me to eat? I can't even remember what they are. They're round and green. What are, what are they? Are those Brussels sprouts? And, and asparagus. That was the other one. I eat food I like to eat. <laughs> and I do it to the glory of God. The law contained dietary restrictions. Are they binding on us today? No. And so I can eat that bacon sandwich to the glory of God. I can eat barbecue to the glory of God. I'm going to leave here today and maybe get some hot wings to the glory of God. Because it's Father's Day and I have liberty to do that. And God is pleased for us to live in enjoyment of this world that he has made. He made this world to be enjoyed by his children. The legalist, the false teacher, the seducing spirit, they want to put you in bondage to cruel, bitter, and unenjoyable lifestyles. Now again... We're not talking about pleasing the flesh, but we are talking about living in Christian liberty to the glory of God. When Paul, when the, the elders, in, and I intended to go here and read it for you, but I won't. In Acts 15, the elders and the apostles wrote a letter to Gentiles, and they put no dietary restriction other than that which God gave in the beginning of time, or excuse me, after the, after the flood of Noah. Don't eat things with the blood in it, but anything else you Gentiles, you eat and you eat to the glory of God. The moral of the story today, we do all that we do to the glory of God. If it is permissible, if it's not sinful, and we be not entangled with any yoke of bondage, we be aware that there are false teachers in the world that seek to put us under their cruel, tyrannical yoke, and we tell them, no thanks, we have liberty in Jesus and we will do all things that are permissible unto the glory of our God.